Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. And also, welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by. Uh, it is hot. It is sweltering. If you're watching the video show, I sincerely apologize. I'm trying to cool myself down over here. Uh, hopefully, I'll be nice and regulated as the conversation goes on. Uh, and this is a conversation that I love having. This is one of my favorite guests that I've had on the show. He's been on my show a couple of times. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago we discussed a Freedom the Underground Railroad. Uh, and, you know, just stopping by whenever we want to chat some history and some, uh, you know, good theoretical, ludical, uh, I think that's a word, right? Ludical concepts? Sure. It's <laughs> now. It is now. <laughs> he is the writer of the Ludica blog on BGG. Uh, he is a professor of history specializing in African-American studies at Bowdoin College. His name is Dr. Patrick Rail. Welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me on again. Actually, uh, you, you had reached out to me in response to one of my episodes, which is in, which is also on Shelf Stories and the Stop Cup Shop. And I said, you know what? You said you had some comments. Let's just you know hash it out uh, here in the recording, and I'll get another recording out of it. So <laughs> let's do it. So uh, okay. So a couple of weeks ago, um, it is so. It's no secret that I am the cultural consultant that was responsible for the retheme of Puerto Rico. So I have. Uh, in Patrick, a recent blog of Patrick's, I turned Puerto Rico 1851 into Puerto Rico. Oh, no. A Puerto Rico, what was it? 1545 or something? 1543, I think the math goes. Why did you, why did you isolate 1543? 1493. So this is the box back of Puerto Rico, the, of the original. It explains when this game is set. This is the only information we have about the actual historical mm. setting of the game that is discursive is 50 years after Columbus landed on the... Uh, easternmost island of the Greater Antilles, Puerto Rico. Uh, so that would be 1543. <laughs> this is the level of detail we get into in this show, people. <laughs> so, so we'll call the original Puerto Rico 1543. I, you know, led the retheme Puerto Rico 1897. Now, I, I had a commentary episode about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so, which was comparing and contrasting euros and war games with different approaches to history. So, you know, uh, Patrick uh, contacted me. We're good friends. We, you know, we go back and forth. And he's like, I'd like to talk about that. That's so interesting. And I said, come on the show. Uh, so this is a larger conversation. This is not necessarily about the game. This is about euros and war games, two things that solo players are very, very uh, familiar with. And so helping people think about what they're playing, helping designers. You know, how do they approach their game and how do they uh, implement theme in their games and how can they kind of level up their understanding and, you know, uh, wade these cultural waters? <laughs> I get a lot of people reaching out to me going, I don't know what the right answer is. It's like, oh, it's, let's start with avoiding the wrong ones. So <laughs> we'll just go from there. And it's a lot not easier to build this on negative examples than positive examples very often. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot easier to think people. So this is one of my uh, episodes towards that purpose, helping people understand the themes in this particular case, Euros and war games in a deeper way. Good. Uh, okay. So, well, first, before we get to that, uh, Patrick, what you've been up to? Uh, what have you been playing? What have you been um, doing that you can reveal anyway? I know some of the things that you've been doing, but I know that there's some uh, hush about that, but what you've been up no. to? I'm nothing, no secrets here. So I've got a, um, so 
doing a bunch of things. So one thing is I'm preparing to teach more courses on uh, games and history. Uh, another is, you know, writing about games and history. So obviously uh, the reissue of Puerto Rico is a really big deal and that's raised a lot of interesting questions. So I've been thinking about those. And I've also been doing some designing as well because I'm really interested in trying like all these conversations, like the one I, I think we're gonna have today about Wargaming versus Euro games. It's really about how we can design history games, uh, history games that are both accessible and learnable, um, but also take history seriously and do a good job with history. So um, I'm trying to um, walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So I've been doing some design work in that space as well, and I'm happy to share that with you when, you're, when you wish. <laughs> it's so funny because uh, so and Liz and I were talking about this, too. So Liz Davidson, uh, you know, another good friend. Uh, so a lot of us on the content side got started 2014, 15, 16 or somewhere around there. And now it's been a, a bunch of years and so many of us are getting into the making of the games. Like, it's like, okay, we've been talking about it. We've making our criticisms, but let's like show people. <laughs> and so uh, we're starting to, you know, get in there and release products and work with companies and do all sorts of other stuff. So it's great. And I love I it. I see that you, yeah, you were working on a design of your own. I saw you on Twitter talking about that. Well, we parked that one for now. <laughs> That's what okay. happens with designs, right? You, you design them and then you park them for a little bit, let them cook, and then we'll get back to it. Anyway. It is hard. Yeah. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's well, one of these days. One of these days. Uh, we'll get into the, some of my adventures in designing. Okay. Uh, so, again, um, Euro games and war games. So, in a way, that was a fake deck designation. So it, it's like these kind of labels, right? These global labels. So like, I think on, this, on a basic level, we can distinguish Catan from Axis and Allies. Like these are two different games. Yeah. Uh, so, and we use these words, right? Euro war game. So I want to be very clear that like, I'm not saying that these things are like, just, you know, worlds apart. They're not even the same genre, whatever it is. They are, they are in the same genre. Well, my, my point in the episode was, when it comes to games that model history, I have more confidence in games where the mechanisms are, are um, devoted to high conflict interactions. Because I think history is conflict, right? So then in wargaming, you, you just happen to have a lot of development with like, a, I mean, there's tons of historical war games. And then in Euro games, the history tends to look a lot different. It does look a lot, in my opinion, flatter and Whatever, whatever my my um, criticisms have been. So that's the has the high level, and so I, I guess you know from there. Now that we've opened the audience up, where did you kind of go with? Yeah. So I thought that was a really fascinating insight. I think that that's uh, absolutely generally too true. We tend to think of uh, war games as being, uh, in some important way, seriously engaged with history in a way that kind of. Uh, standard or classic euros or not, right? Which is weird because both are very history laden, right? Yes. If you think all the classic euros, I mean, they're sort of different flavors. There's maybe some science fiction theme stuff out there, but history is just dripping from these games. Whether you're talking about, you know, Amun-Ra and ancient Egyptian mm -hmm. history or Silk Road games, Journey trading of, games. Journey of Marco Polo. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, and then these, you know, Medici, right? These are set in with Renaissance. So they're, they're sort of classical themes. Um, what I might think of in not a great way as Orientalist themes, mm -hmm. right? Referencing 
Eastern world. Uh, and then they get into these games of colonization and exploration, which start getting into some really dicey history. So that, but those Euro games are, are, there's a lot of history around them in some fashion. And of course we know that that's true about war games as well, right? right. War games are, are when we think of, you know, Stalingrad or squad leader or whatever it is, these are games that also seriously engage history. And I think you're suggesting that there's an important distinction between right. the ways these things engage history, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'll, I'll push the strong form, but I think that we're going to just better at it. Like I, I, get, <laughs> I get quite skeptical with, with the ability of a Euro game to deliver, especially history at the 25,000 foot level. So like the grand sweeps. Right. So, you know, in the, I guess, conflict game, we're used to like sieve area things. So it's like, okay, uh, I am Montezuma and you are, um, you know, Suleiman and, you know, we're, we're interacting. Right. So like, uh, at, you know, and I, and I grew up in like Fortress America too. So it's like, you know, you're not going to learn very much history from a game like Fortress America. It's like, you know, a blob of America versus a blob of invading Mexico versus a blob of invading Russia. But at the very what? least. <laughs> That's a counterfactual game. And that brings up another set. There was a, critique of your take on 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 puerto rico that was about counterfactual history so that's one we might bookmark for sure, later. Sure. right it's so, I mean, even then even then right so like i learned something from <laughs> fortress yeah. america i learned at least a geographical sense and then you get into how they constructed that particular game it's like oh okay they do something different so even the most like hair-brained uh <laughs> war game that's meant for the mass market will offer something yet where these euro games are concerned because of the desire for low conflict because of the, you know, the approach in terms of just endless resources that can be pulled from the earth or whatever Euro games do, there's something in there that it just, it makes it resistant to telling history at that high level. Yeah. And yeah. The, the reason I point that out is because gamers are very used to playing at that high level. Like we really educated ourselves to not so much seek like, you know, local stories or local, whatever we can go there mm. like that at the high level. I just find, I mean, I just have not seen the Euro game that can really pull yeah. it off without without a sneaking in some problematic stuff. So then the question becomes, you know, where does that come from? What drives that? And I, I think that the easiest place people might go is 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 that there are mechanical or, or that there are mechanical differences, or that there are somehow that war games are somehow a kind of game that can do this, whereas Euros can't, and that that is somehow baked in or built into the form itself. And that's something I would push on a little bit. Mm. And my, my, you know, suggestion where I would, you know, sort of toss this back and forth a little bit is uh, mechanics themselves are doing the work or not doing the work. So war games can be terrible and replicate the problems of Euro games, mm -hmm. just as Euro games could be better and replicate what we like about war games. The difference isn't so much in, um, in, in, in something built into the form of these games. It's about what people have chosen to do. It's about the kind of sociological story of how these two genres emerged, right? There are narratives about where war games come from and where Euro games come from. And I think it's those stories rather than the form itself that lead war games to basically, you know, represent history in a higher level way than, than Euros. Okay. So, so uh, to, um, you're going to, you're going to share 
stuff that you wrote in your blog. I want to give you some shine. <laughs> this is written up in the Ludica blog on BGG. So if you want to go ahead and check out the blog section, you know, go ahead and give a subscription. I'm sure Patrick would appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, put a quarter in the cup. Um, <laughs> so war games come from, you know, H.G. Wells, little wars around the turn of the 20th century. Um, the uh, Prussian uh, officer school used war games and Kriegsfeeling was Kriegsfeeling. part of the mm -hmm. way that, you know, Germany prepared for World War I and World War II. After World War II, uh, war games became incredibly important professionally for the CIA in trying to model Cold War stuff. So there's a whole professional side of war gaming that then dripped down into the hobby market through Charles Roberts and Avalon Hill and SPI and Jim Dunnigan and all these other kinds of things. So they come out of a particular way of thinking about what games ought to be and what games ought to do. Euro games come from, in many ways, a reaction to that, mm. right? Mm. Games really emerging in the 90s um, in a part of Europe that is not super excited about gaming World War II over and over again, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of ways, like there's a kind of generational component that, that many of us, particularly the old guys like me, we sort of grew up on the hex encounter stuff in the seventies. And then, you know, we went to college and had careers and did stuff and we always missed gaming. And then we came back in the nineties, but now there are families and now there are video games that are drawing people's attention away. So the values built into Euro games, and these are not intrinsic to their form. It's just how people chose to brand and market these things. Mm. The values in these things were completely different. As you say, they're about indirect conflict. They're about, um, you know, really lower, uh, what I say is cognitive loads, right? They're not asking players to remember as many rules, to as mm -hmm. remember as many rules exceptions. You know, if you play a game, uh, you know, a, a heavy war game of any kind, you're going to have to worry about different kinds of units. Is this an armored fighting vehicle or a tank? What's the difference between cannons and machine guns? These kinds of things. And, you know, most that's a niche thing that will sort of tend to diminish your audience in a way. Yeah, I would say the difference in terms of that ludic form or, uh, you, you know, in another blog, you, you mentioned it as procedural rhetoric, right? The 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 actual gameplay, actual pieces that are moving on the 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 board, a big difference between Euros and war games, war games, all units tend to start on the board. And in a Euro game, you start with a few units on the board and you build them up. I don't right. know. I could many examples of war games though that have orders of battle which bring things on slowly over over time. And but it's you know, not a part of an engine, right? So it's it's always in it's in your reserve, right? So like a, a lot of a lot of games, you you you're not like pro, you're not producing units in the sense of like I put like you know I have a recruiter, right? And I put my recruiter on this space, and the recruiter generates <laughs> you know a unit of infantry, right? So that's a, I guess, so it's like, okay, if, it, if they're not actually on the board, like they're either available or they're in the plans, they're going to come in on turn five or whatever is going to happen. So like, but in a Euro game, they don't exist. Like right. they, they, they're not there because it wants to put you in a space of uh, that idyllic, you know, open, empty land that you get to build. So like, I start with a worker, a barrel and a dream. Yes. And yes. I use, <laughs> use, and I use my cleverness, right? And yeah. I use my long-term strategic teaching in order to build build something. So like your games end in a something, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's that it's that sense of of abstraction, right? And so, like one way I try to think about this with my students, it, it doesn't always work, but I'll try it here. Is the idea of resolution, right? You look at a you look at a, a high resolution graphic has lots of detail. <clears throat> Excuse me. A high resolution graphic has lots of detail. A low resolution graphic does not. Minecraft is eight bit, right? You're not going to get a lot of fine detail. War games tend to move into high resolution, right? Mm. Uh, Closer actual physical scale, but also finer scale in terms of unit separation, in terms of uh, rules exceptions and specifications and things like that. Euros seem much more interested in sort, as you say, sort of setting up this abstract ideal and now let your imagination run wild and work with it. It is a a, a low resolution image very often. There is a gesture Mm. toward ancient Egypt Mm -hmm. or, you know, Victorian, you know, London or whatever it is, but it's their first priority doesn't seem to be simulating those things as much as offering them as a canvas on which your imagination can work. Mm-hmm. And to offer them as a heuristic to help you learn the game, right? So like exactly. that's a lot of a lot of ways. Like I mean that I mean the Rana Quinta is the, the big example. Like Rana Quinta takes his takes his themes very seriously. Like he actually does. He thinks a lot about theme, but he doesn't think about theme in the way of I'm going to tell this grand story. He thinks of it as like what is the best theme that will communicate to the player who they are and what they're doing. Exactly right. right? So so it's the purpose of theme. Uh, uh, is it, and, and I think this sort of moves to another important distinction. War games are sort of conflict simulations, right? They're interested in the, the, the point of the history is to kind of explore it and replicate it. In a Knizia style game, the point of history is to serve as a heuristic device, a learning tool for sort right. of how you figure it, which means that a lot of those euros and certainly Knizia's designs, many of his designs fit this, they're abstracts. They're complicated abstracts, right? They're not as simple as Go or these things. There's a few more rules in there, but really they could take a, a variety of settings. Sure. The, the, the focus is on here are a set of interesting mechanics and it's the interaction of, of mechanics and the play around mechanics takes priority to the history. The history is largely there to help support learning uh, the game and immersing yourself in it a little bit more effectively. Right, okay. That so- seems fair? Yeah, I mean, and so we are describing two different strains, right? We are describing two different strains. And so you, I guess, uh, I mean, go into what you were saying about in the blog, just to be clear, like, I, I see what you're, you're, it sounds like you agree with me. It sounds like you think like there's something in the form of these two games that make them tell different types of stories. And before you were saying before, there's a lot in the, I guess, the convention or the, uh, the social uh, background. Yeah. And so like, where is it? Where is the ability to tell history? Is it in the social conventions, the way they've come up or is it in the form themselves? Like, I mean, I think yeah. it's pretty strongly in the forms. Like, but where do you land ultimately? Yeah. So the reason why I push back on that, let me put it this way. War games are effective or generally speaking in the broad terms that we've posed, war games are more effective at at representing history seriously and engaging history seriously. My, My thought is that it's not war that does this. It's not conflict that makes that the case. It is mechanics, that this is a part of the hobby that stresses mechanics because it's interested in simulating history. 
the fact that it's interested in simulating the history of conflict is the sociological part. You can make equally complicated games. Mm. You can make mechanics do the same work of simulating history seriously and closely without themes of conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the barrier that I'm trying to break down. And you can imagine why I might be trying to break it down because I'm really interested in uh, you know, writing about, seeing, supporting, making, teaching good history games. And in my view, that, that Euro approach, which is trim down rule sets, moves towards abstraction, sort of generalization and, and simplicity and ease over complication specificity, that, that that Euro game model isn't as good at replicating history but if you took the mechanics from war games, stripped them of their conflict themes, you could do an awful lot with history, right? Mm. If you were interested, if you could get people, th the same people who are interested in war games, if you can get their buy-in on games that are not about conflict or at least military conflict, think of what's possible. We can start modeling social movements. We could start modeling uh, political elections. We could start modeling, um, you know, conflicts over environmental resources, things like that. The whole field of history can open up if we could just crack this <laughs> fetishization in a way. Get criticized for that, but it's a fetishization of of, of military themes, right? So mm. that's what I'm really going for. That's where I think the payoff is: is taking the kind of the willingness to engage the cognitive load of war mm. game mechanics, we can move that to history in some fashion. I think we'll all be better served. Okay. Uh, no, thank you very much for breaking that down. So uh, this is where um, I'll go back to the thing I, I began with, where like my, my distinction between Euro and war games is a little bit fake. Um, so, and really what I want to talk about is low conflict engines versus high conflict engines, because I think that there's a, you can, you can have a high conflict engine Euro game. You know, you can have a Euro game that kind of fights back. You know, a lot of Euro game ha happens on the board and it's, it's theoretically multiplayer solitaire, but like you can have the occasional Euro game that A, the, the players conflict for, you know, uh, resources in a Euro way. So like Scythe, right? <clears throat> Scythe would be, it's a pretty, um, it's, it's, you know, cause you're, you're just doing your stuff on your own, but then once you want that one barrel in the middle of the, of the heck, then it becomes yeah. pretty high conflict. Uh, right. Or at least like very, uh, very tight. And I, so I think that example, people kind of mentioned that in one of the comments uh, to my tweet about this. They said like, okay, well, what about side? What about, you know, these other games? And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to ride with that. I guess um, there's still, and, and maybe I'm, I was thinking of this too much and maybe you're challenging me to kind of make it clearer. Maybe I'm not talking about the game. Maybe I'm talking about the gamer. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm talking about the type of person who plays a either a war game or just like a high conflict ameritrash dice chucker right or yeah. that, that, that sensibility that wants conflict and that wants you know kind of the back and forth and then right. a euro gamer is someone who like I, I i play amongst euro gamers here in connecticut so there's a lot of them i mean you show up at seven o'clock and it's the, the place at 7 30 yoop into the board <laughs> <laughs> looking at their own stuff and they're not really interacting even with the people at their own table until, yeah. you know, whatever the game is over. So I think there is something pretty ingrained in the sensibility of a Euro gamer that resists 
yeah. high conflict, resist, you know, taking resources and all that kind of stuff. And I guess that's difficult for me as a person as who is really who studies history, who sees history as conflictual, even if it's not a war. Yeah. You know, right. if I'm if I'm gonna make a game about a labor dispute, that's not a war. If I'm right. gonna make a game about like, you know, the great migration. Uh, in the you know 19th to 20th centuries, where you know a lot of African Americans move move from the South, you know I can make that game in a low interaction way. But am I telling a real story if I don't talk about the conflicts that were encountered as they moved? You know, so yeah. I guess that's where I'm starting to get, I get I still get that question. Mm -hmm. it, it so this is happening in the realm of values and taste. I would suggest rather than form. Right? It would be possible to. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm, so the classic Euro uh, multiplayer solitaire example is Agricola or something sure. like that. I mean, I, I can imagine introducing a mechanical system into that game where, you know, pillaging happens or something. <laughs> you, you could do that and right. it would, would it remain a Euro then? You know, what defines a Euro? Is it the mechanics or is it the values that are brought to their design, right? Is it a Euro because, um, you know, it's worker placement and resource competition, or is it a Euro because we like games without a lot of direct competition, mm -hmm. you know? I think it's the latter. I think that a lot, and, and so thank you for helping me clarify. I think I'm talking about the gamer end of things and the sensibility that we bring to these games. So like, I think a Euro gamer has a sensibility where they want to build their engine. What, what is the most popular game nowadays? Arc Nova. Arc Nova mm -hmm. is an engine builder. You might as well be sitting by yourself. And it's a great engine. You know, I've built a zoo and or I've done whatever I want to do. Uh, so, it, but, but I've built my engine at my, me, my, do not take my bears. Leave my cluster of geese alone that, you know, when combined, they, they, they do all sorts of points. So I, it's something that's, I'm, I guess I'm, not that it's impossible, but I want people to really think about, you know, okay, they're just splashing these Euro games with history, given the sensibility. And I, I think it's sticky. I think it's a real, I think it's pretty sticky that like a, a player who comes to a Euro game is going to expect a certain type of solitaire engine building, et cetera. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's partly about, about genre convention, right? Like why would that player expect that when you, you know, somebody brings a new box with a, uh, exotic name on it and a weird picture on the box, you know what you're going to be doing. You're going to be doing, you know, some kind of worker placement resource collection, competition okay. kind of thing, multiplayer solitaire, but it doesn't have to be right. That is because Euro game marketers know that if they sort of keep feeding us the basic same product, we will have a sense of what is in that box. That can be good. And that can be bad in the music world. In, in my humble opinion, what we tend to do, what record companies would like us to do is just keep turning out the same thing. They would be happy if we bought the exact same thing <laughs> over, over again, right? That's the way capitalism right, right, works. Yeah. But consumer taste is such that, no, we demand some variation. So, you know, how much variation do we want? Are we interested in games that just wrinkle the basic formula? Are we really you know, fascinated with the genre and how it can be explored and exploded and all this kind of stuff. That's about the game. That's about the gamer's taste. It's about the designer and what they're trying to do. What's exciting to me. So here's what I like about Euro games. This is, this is, you know, why I would usually rather play a Euro than a complicated war game is that I love elegance of play. I love ease of learning. I love um, you know, a graphic style that helps me learn. I like limited play times and I don't 
want to be into a cutthroat kind of competition like you would get with diplomacy, which, um, you know, has ended a bunch of friendships, you know. <laughs> um, so that those are the good things about euros. The problem with euros in terms of representing history are exactly the things that you're talking about. It's the sort of abstracting of things. It's this like kind of generalization of things. It is the elimination of conflict when there actually was conflict. And that starts speaking to the representation of history that's going on there, right? right. So if, if, if your view of history is, is that no conflict ever happens, that's a very questionable view of history. Right. So are there ways that Euro games with their playability assets and advantages can be made to do some of the work that we think war games traditionally do, which is engage and represent history more effectively? Mm -hmm. And I guess that's like, can that happen in a low conflict paradigm? So like just to give some specificity to the discussion. Uh, so we're talking about like uh, presenting history and I guess my school, I guess I would be like a Howard Zinn type person, uh, you know, people's history. Uh, so then that, that school of thinking, it's influenced by Marxism, kind of sees conflict in most of what history is going on, some kind of conflict. So, you know, take the example of, of Catan. Let's take Catan, right? Uh, so then Catan is not a historical game, but it is evoking things. And, if, and as a matter of fact, I think you put this in your blog, the original settlers of Catan was like, it, it was a fictional place, but like they're European explorers. Like I'm looking at European explorers <laughs> in yeah. a new world. So I mean, my brain is going to go there. So it's like, okay, what have they erased? They have erased natives, right? Because natives were an impediment to building. They were impediment to building to the historical conquistadors. So like they've just like completely wiped them off the map. Do you have the, the robber? Maybe the robber is sometimes mentioned as like, oh. who is that? <laughs> indigenous, yeah. indigenous who knows but but yeah, he could have right. been a stowaway for all i know i mean he was like some vagabond sure. doesn't even, i don't even count that one uh <laughs> anyway so but okay there is a tiny little bit of conflict just to kind of wrinkle up the game but like it's not representing anything significant uh so and also like you know so let's so also games that simulate labor you know they've erased the struggle of labor so they've mm -hmm. you know like, like it was hard you know you work for free and see how you yeah. like it and see how much you would resist. Right. And so I think there's this idea that like, well, the labor is there and they worked and they generated these values. Well, if you're not working and if you don't have your freedom, and you know, working for free, then you're not going to like it. So it's like a lot of rebellion happened and a lot of resistance happened. So like we've erased realities uh, germane to the Native Americans. We've relate, we've erased realities germane to the black experience. So like in America, that's what we talk about, right? We talk about these two yeah. kind of original sins. Of and it just so happens you said before like your be like your games extract things it just so happens that it, these are the yeah. things that they abstract you know right, because right. they're coming at it from the perspective of the merchant or the you know or the diplomat or the warlord or whatever it is so yeah. so I guess yeah. I, I mean I, I mean I know I'm kind of pushing this question but like you know is Actually, you know what? I'll put it this way because there's nothing stopping a Euro game from simulating some of these things, right? Like you can throw natives in, you know, Catan and, and like you can make that work. You can kind of make labor resist and like you have to like discipline it in order to kind of get it to work. Like, yeah. but would anybody buy that? <laughs> you know? like, is I, that? That is the question. That for me is a $64,000 question. Like what would it take for mm -hmm. a Euro do the kind of work that I want a historical game to do. Yeah, see, yes. would people buy it? You know, and I, I think that, I think that they would. Look, if you can surreptitiously, if you can smuggle into Euro games, slavery, colonialism, exploitation, you know, 
genocide, all if you can things, smuggle yeah. those into euros, how come you can't also smuggle labor conflict, social resistance, slave rebellion, you know, those kinds of things. Um, you know, it, 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 and it's hard for me to say because I'm not the public. I have particular tastes and I certainly, you know, not normal tastes. I don't know whether people would buy a, a worker placement game where the workers required discipline and didn't always do exactly what you wanted them to do. I can imagine that, though, being a fascinating mechanic if it was handled right. I can imagine a worker placement game where your workers resist in some way or you have to manage them in some way. I can imagine that being a fa fascinating mechanical puzzle that also says something about history that's a little bit closer to what you know we might want it to say. I am a little bit more skeptical and less hopeful than you, having gotten into some of the conversations that I've gotten into. So like I have this big thing about uh, worker pay. Like, I don't think there should be any workers in any even vaguely historical game that don't, that aren't paid. You know, I just think that's I consider that boss fantasy. Every boss in America would want to, you know, have workers that just showed up and didn't go to the bathroom and didn't have any problems. You'd have to pay them. So like that that's a boss fantasy. So like here I am playing all these boss fantasies. So I I, I do that sometimes. I'll just like put out in Twitter or, or some Facebook group or whatever. They're like, OK, I think that, um, you know, if you if you really wanted to represent workers, the baseline, the baseline, the, the dictionary definition of a worker is someone who you pay for their labor, especially in a capitalist system. So it's like if you're playing a capitalist or mercantilist game, let's pay some workers. And the pushback to that little bit. <laughs> the pushback, it's like, well, that would, um, you know, the, the game wouldn't be as streamlined. You know, like we're like, and, and that's why I kind of laugh a little bit inside. You're talking about these simple rule sets, like modern euros are not <laughs> modern euros. Like the solo mode is like 20 pages. That's the solo mode of a of a modern euro. So like, there's people who will accept all these levels of complication to accomplish all these other things, but there's this resistance to just this, just paying workers, yeah. because I think yeah. in, in the back of their minds is like, okay, well, everything in a euro game is like an exchange. Like I, I pay one, I get two. So like a work, a paying a worker in their minds would be paying for nothing because in this other game, I can just get the thing. So there's yeah. a resistance to just like, give, it feels like they're giving something up. They're losing something. So I'm like, I, I so I, I definitely get to your point that that's a lot of convention. I accept that. I guess I wonder if the form, the form of convention are kind of working together. Mm -hmm. to make the resistance to conflict stickier yep. than it might need to be. I, I think that that's, that's a really smart observation, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, in uh, Janet Murray's Ham uh, Hamlet on the Holodeck, which is kind of a classic text in sort of digital culture from the 90s, there's this chapter called Allegories of Control, which mm. is all about, like, this is what games give us. And it, I think it is, to a degree, hardwired into them. Games give players a kind of agency and control. control. Now they can limit it. In fact, they have to limit it, right? Because there's always creative constraint, right? Uh, um, the, the, the constraint in golf is you have the ability to get that ball in the hole, but you can only do it with a club, right? So there's always agency and there's always constraint. If you have pure agency, you, you don't have any struggle. You don't have any game. If you have pure constraint, you can't win. Um, so it is, there is a kind of hardwired element into this, but I think the opposite is hardwired in as well. The constraint is hardwired in as well. Normally with worker placement games, okay, yeah, you don't have to pay the workers. You don't have to worry about their obedience or disciplining them or anything like that. Instead, you're worrying about resource extraction and conversion and engine building and all that kind of stuff. There is no mechanical reason why that has to be. 
There's no mechanical reason why it couldn't be all about managing your workers to do some simple uh, resource extraction and some easier kind of resource conversion and engine building kind of stuff. The reason if that doesn't happen, the reason it doesn't happen is not because of the constraint of the form, but because of the constraint of the marketplace, because of values and what people are willing to play. Here's the thing. Form constraints cannot really be removed entirely, right? right? right. Game will always have to have struggle and luck. You know, these are factors that are built in. There's always got to be player agency. There's always got to be choice. But tastes can change and tastes do change. And we know this because we've seen it in our hobby in enormously powerful and profound ways over the last few decades. <clears throat> and I think that that's, it's possible for this to change as well. Maybe it's not going to hit everything. Maybe uh, say if we imagine our, our, our worker placement game where you know, we don't have automatic 100% control over those people. Um, maybe not everyone's going to sign on to a game like that, but there certainly may be a, a niche created in this hobby where that is absolutely prized. Um, and those, you know, if, if you get good designers working in that space, I want to see Vital Lacerda do a game like <laughs> about labor control. What would, would Annabelle Holland do with something like that? You know, mm -hmm. I think that there are possibilities there, but it's, as with changing any other kind of genre, you've got to push on those conventions and that's a hard thing to do. I think those conventions are pretty wired into the larger culture. Like what you're talking, like there's, um, so like the historical nature of war games or the you know pastoral nature of Euro games, those are taste things, there's no stakes there, right? But these more kind of ideological things. So it's like, you know, uh, paying workers or representing women as not, you know, full figured and chain bikini and all kind of stuff. Like, you know, that, that, those tastes are proving a lot more durable because they map onto the current social hierarchies. And but that's where I get it. What's that? But they're being challenged in all kinds of ways. So Elizabeth Hargrave raising, you know, a, a, a good, good trouble on Twitter about, you know, the boobs and butts covers and stuff like that that couldn't have happened 10 years ago, probably not five years ago, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a kind of sensitization that's happening that's very constructive and very good for this hobby. It's not gonna bring everybody along with it because it, it, it never does. There will always, you know, maybe the whole rump of the hobby is gonna remain where it's remained, but something is moving. And that's where the action is, baby. That's always where it is, where you're talking so, about, you know, jazz. so pumped up, my God. Anything. <laughs> And this is, I, this is, I feel like so uh, disoriented because usually I'm the optimistic one. I'm the one like kind of, you know, holding the banner for change. And I feel like I'm the one blanking this conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick, Look, for mirroring my normal enthusiasm. <laughs> this is important, right? Because this is why we play. This is what play is about. If you can't imagine it, you can't do it. And what games give us is a space of play where we can imagine the extraordinary. We can practice doing things that are impossible, you know, and we can do that in negative ways, but we can do it in positive ways as well. And that's really what I, where I think the action in, in, in games is. And these kinds of games is that you can explore possibilities for social change that are not possible otherwise. Mm. Mm. Okay, uh, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> Sorry, that's how it goes with me. And that'll be the tantalizing end of the show for this week. Please tune in next week for the continuation of my conversation with Dr. Patrick Rail. We talked about Euro games and war games this time. Now we're going to drill a little bit deeper and we're going to talk about the nature of history games themselves. Uh, what do they do? What do they not do? When do they go right? And when do they go wrong? See you next time.
Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list.